Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a gracious privilege it is uh, to gather this morning in your name. We thank you that we can come here and worship you and celebrate you and declare your truth openly without fear of reprisal and without worrying for our lives. We know that it's not always been this way, and we know that it will not always be this way. But today, in this moment, we are here with our hearts filled with gratitude that we can openly declare the name of Jesus. Father, we pray that our hearts today would be open, that you would help us to be attentive, that you would help us to, to hear your voice, help us to know you better so that we can grow in our faith and grow in our ability to submit our hearts and minds to you. Father, we pray that this morning that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth that's found in your holy word and that you would use your word and the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about change and transformation in our lives. Let us not be hearers only, but doers as well. Father, as we open, um, as we approach your word and open your word, and as we read your word, that we'd ask that you'd help us to set aside anything that, um, that, that we would impose on the word, whether it's our own ideas or our preconceived notions, anything that clouds our judgment, anything that we bring in from, from, our, from old traditions, um, anything that, that clouds the, the, the way that we can see the real glorious truth. And we ask this morning that you would continue to work in us and change us evermore in the image of your Son and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile phone or a Bible app on your church app, um, please turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be in uh, chapter number 11. Um, the book of John, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is a, <clears throat> it's actually the fourth book in the, um, the New Testament. Um, so John chapter 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we're going to begin reading in um, <clears throat> verse 1. And it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord, the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Theologian A.W. I mean, Tozer once wrote, um, What then are we to do about our problems? We must learn to live with them until such a time that God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure uh, them without murmuring. Problem, problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting, they harm us only if we resist them and endure them unwillingly. Well, I'm going to welcome you back to uh, part three of our series titled uh, Waiting on God. And, and as, we, as we talked about from the very beginning, um, the reason why we're in this series is actually twofold. Number one, um, I think it's because we're just impatient. We hate to wait. Um, in fact, there's anything that we don't want to do. We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait two minutes for Taco Bell to make our burrito supreme, Right. That's why we call it fast food. We don't want, we don't want to wait for um, traffic. We don't want to wait in line at the pilot to get gas. That's why we were so excited for them to open up a gas station here. Right? We don't want to wait for um, our spouses to get ready. Um, so we want to go somewhere. We don't want to wait to see the doctor. We don't want to wait to, on technology. I am guilty of that. As I'm this morning you know, setting up the computer, it's taking forever to load up this morning. And I'm just like, oh, my daughter's going, um, you're supposed to wait. Okay. Thank you, my. At least she's listening, right? Well, we don't want to wait for anything. We don't want when we're when we're young. We don't want to wait till we're sixteen to drive, and we don't want to wait till we're twenty-one to drink. Kids don't want to wait. Don't want to wait to be grown-ups, and, and grown-ups can't wait to go home and take a nap, right? We don't want to wait for our tax refunds. We don't want to wait to, to buy a car. We don't want to wait until Christmas to open Christmas presents. We don't want to wait until we get married to have sex. We don't want to wait for anything, anything at all including God. That's reason number one. Number two, 
is, is the fact that in spite of the fact that we don't want to wait, in spite of the fact that we hate to wait, we were created by God to have to wait on him. We were designed to wait for God. That is the reality we need to come to terms with. We were created in such a way that we need to wait on God. That is why we have to wait on him. Because God is everything that we are not. God is everything that we need. Because, because you see, it's, it's, it's about what our theology says about God. It's about what we understand about God and what we understand about ourselves in light of who God is. Right? What do we know about God? We, what we know is that he is completely sovereign and he's in complete control. He is all good. He is all knowing. And he works things out for our best. That is what we know about God. On the other hand, what we know about us is that, that we, as God's creatures, we are not sovereign and in control. We are not always good. At, though at times we are capable of good things, but we're not always good. We're not always all-knowing either, right? And we certainly don't always do things in our own best interests. That's what we know about us. And so what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that, that, that God is all-sufficient and we are insufficient, Right? God is perfect, we are imperfect. God is complete, we are incomplete. God is everything that we are not. He is everything that we need, which means we desperately need God. Right? Which means we are simply designed to wait on Him. We are wholly dependent upon Him. He is eternal, we are temporal. He knows all things, right? We don't. He knows the beginning from the end, right? You can't even remember to switch the clothes from the washer to the dryer so they don't stink later on, right? And more importantly, we owe our entire existence to God, right? He created us. You were alive this morning because God wills it to be so. You got up this morning and so did your family and your children, right? Because God is sovereign and by his hand, he allowed it to be so. We are completely and totally dependent upon him, even if we don't want to be. We were designed to wait on God. And, and, and for the first week, we talked about the fact that waiting on God is actually, um, you know, not just that we're just designed that, but ultimately it's a spiritual discipline. Waiting on God is a spiritual discipline that's good for us. Waiting on God actually is beneficial for us. In fact, we talked about four ways that it is. Number one, waiting on God demonstrates that, that our submission to his sovereignty. Number two, it shows how much we value God, which is an act of worship. Number three, it, it, it's how God changes us. God changes us when we wait. Number four, it's in our best interest because God is perfect in his timing. That's what we talked about in week one. And then last week we talked about waiting on God when our lives change. Because if there's anything we can count on is the fact that everything in our lives will absolutely change. And what we talked about is that, that we have a choice. We can either trust in ourselves, in our own ability, and in, in our own understanding, or we can lean on God. Right? That's the choice we have. And the Bible tells us to lean not on your own understanding, but in, in all your ways acknowledge the Lord and to trust the fact that, that you're going to make your plans, but God orders your steps. So we're encouraged by the Bible to wait on God for, for as life changes. Okay? And, and we're to wait by growing you know, and applying five principles in our lives. The principle number one was the principle of devotion, that we devote ourselves completely to God into his hand. Principle two is that we fear the Lord, that we come to the Lord with reverential respect, right? That, that, that we understand that God is sovereign. He's the Lord of all the universe and that we need to stand in awe and admiration and respect of him. Number three is the principle of humility in light of who God is. Who are we? We should humble ourselves before God. Number four is the principle of being teachable, right? That we, that we actually wait on God most effectively when we are being taught by him in his word, which means we spend time with him in his word. And number five is the principle of personal holiness. As we wait for God to answer our prayers, as we wait for God to give us direction, that we practice the holiness he's calling us all to, he says, be holy, therefore, for your God is holy. And if we'll do these things, if we'll apply these things to our lives, the word says that, that, uh, that, that when we wait on God, we will not be put to shame. Now, we've actually covered a lot of ground last two weeks. We've really laid a pretty heavy theological foundation uh, for, for where we're going so far. So if you've missed any of the last two weeks, I want to encourage you to go back and to listen to what you've missed. Uh, you can do that three ways. Either you can go to our, our SoundCloud page. Um, you know, and the address to that is in your uh, bulletin. Uh, or you can go to our church website, fbcboron.org, click the sermon tab. They're all right there. Or you can listen to, uh, to it on, on the brand new uh, uh, church app on your mobile device. Either way, I want to encourage you to listen so you can get caught up um, so that way you are up to speed with where we are.
but uh, in week one, we talked about waiting on God in our daily devotional time. Um, and last week, we talked about waiting on God when life changes. But today, we're going to talk about waiting on God when life is hard. Because the truth is, if there's anything as certain as change in our lives, is the fact that we're all going to face difficult and painful times, right? All of us have been or will continue to go through times of deep pain. We will go through times of unbearable sorrow and agonizing difficulty. We have all lost loved ones. We have all, every one of us, been affected by cancer, right? We have all experienced setbacks in our lives. We, we, we have all known financial stress. We have all had our hearts broken. We have all been betrayed by someone we care about and trust. We have also been the betrayer and betrayed people ourselves. We have all failed miserably at something. We have all done things we deeply regret. We have all endured incredible difficulty in our lives. Doesn't matter who you are, whether you're young or old. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, single, or married. We all, every one of us, endure difficult times in suffering. And so if there's any reason at all for you to be compassionate to your neighbor, is that you understand what it's like to go through hard times. We have all been there. And the truth is, some of you are already there right now. Some of you are going through a tough time right now. Some of you are in the middle of a trial. I've heard it once said that either you're in a hard place in your life right now, or you just got over a hard place in your life, or you're getting ready to go into a hard place in, in your life. All of us go there. All of us experience our share of painful, difficult times. And in those times, it's in those times, it's especially hard for us to wait on God. In those times, we get upset, we get frustrated, because we wonder, what is God doing? Right? In those moments, we wonder, is God even there? I mean, where is God, is what we ask. We ask questions like, why me, Lord? Why this situation? Why you know, do I have to go through this? Where are you? Right? Are you punishing me? Did you abandon me? Right? Why am I going through this? Why won't you help me? These are the kind of questions that we wrestle with. These are the things that we find ourselves dealing with in those periods in our life when, when things don't make sense, when things are hard. It's what we ask when we experience deep pain and anguish. It's what we wonder when we go through the devastating losses and hardships and sufferings that inevitably seem to come our way. God, where are you? What are you doing? Right? These are the normal questions that for us to ask right, when everything seems wrong. And we wonder what this means for us and our theology. Right? I mean, if God is completely sovereign... And I'm not completely dependent. If God is sovereign and in control, and I'm completely dependent upon him, then let's be real. He's allowing me to go through this. Okay? He's allowing me to suffer. He's allowed these things to happen in my life. If not, he's even caused them. What does that mean then about God? Is he, is he punishing me? I mean, is God not as good as I thought he was? Is he not as sovereign as I thought he was? Maybe he's not really in control. Maybe he's not as good as I, I thought he was. Maybe he's not so all-knowing. Maybe I've just misunderstood who God was. Maybe, maybe I was just wrong about God. Maybe he's not even there. Maybe my theology is messed up, right? Maybe he just doesn't care about me. We've all been there. We've asked these kinds of questions where is God in our pain? Why does he make us wait? Why does he allow us or cause us to go through these times? I mean, if he's truly sovereign, right, and good and all-knowing and, and, and works things out for my good, then why do we have to suffer the way that we suffer? Our theology of God is challenged in, in times of, of pain. But let me, let, me, let me tell you, though. It's in times like this, if you build your theology around the prosperity gospel, then you're really in trouble. I mean, think about this. What happens in times like this when your theology says, trust in Jesus and your life is going to magically be better, right? If you would just have enough faith, God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and happy, right? What happens in those times of deep pain, you know, when you came to Christ to help you to live your best life now? right? Or, or, or that, that, that you can prosper now. What happens when you pray and the cancer doesn't go away? What happens when you, when you, when, when you believe with all your heart for a healing and that, that your mom still dies? What happens when you're believing for a miracle and you have to come to understand that, that you're going to have to live with the pain the rest of your life? What happens 
to your faith, when you're trusting in Jesus to bring you prosperity, right? But it doesn't come. Because let me just tell you, the Bible doesn't talk about that kind of a Jesus, okay? In fact, look at what Jesus has promised himself. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, okay? He he said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And he didn't say that you may have tribulation. He didn't say that that you could have tribulation. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Tribulation is a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. You will experience suffering and hard times. That's the words of Jesus himself. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when things get hard as if it were something unexpected. Suffering is a part of life. Suffering is a part of life, and it's especially a part of the Christian life. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're not taking some lumps on the chin for the gospel, are you really even like sharing the gospel? Suffering and pain is simply a part of the deal. It is a promised part of your life. How do you reconcile then the prosperity gospel against that? You can't do it. The Bible itself destroys the prosperity gospel. But then how do we reconcile our understanding of God and his sovereignty when things get hard? Because either he allows our suffering to happen or he ordains it. And we need to understand that, right? If God is sovereign and in control, God allows our suffering to happen or he ordains for it to happen. I mean, if, if, if our suffering is outside of God's control, then he is not sovereign. So it must be within his control, which means either he allows it or he ordains it, which I readily admit is hard to swallow. But the Bible tells us it is in control. But the Bible tells us we are, that we are dependent upon God. The Bible tells us that we will suffer in this life. Then why? Why, Lord? We must we suffer? Why must we wait on the Lord when we suffer? That's the question. That's the question we're going to look at today. Why do we have to wait on God when life is hard? Well, in the book of John, there is a story here, I think, that's going to help us to wrap our heads around this question. The story is the story of Lazarus in um, so if you look with me at, at John chapter 11, uh, we're going to look at this story and, and see how it can help us to make sense of why and, 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 and how we need to wait on God when life is hard. So beginning in verse 1, it reads, Now a certain man is, was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But then Jesus heard it and said, this illness does not lead to death for it is for the glory of God and the son of God may be glorified through it. One of the, the, the truths that we need to, to, to understand and we have to, we have to actually just come to grips with is the fact that everything that, that God does, everything that he does himself is for his own glory. God created the universe for his glory. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for his glory, right? He he rescues us as sinners by his grace for his glory. And we are allowed to suffer and struggle in difficult times for God's glory. Everything that God does ultimately is for his glory. Look what Jesus says. He says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Lazarus' suffering, his illness, his pain was for the glory of God. God allowed it and ordained it so that Jesus, God in the flesh, would be glorified. That's what it says. Now, many of us are going to push back from this. We're going to push back against this. We're going to say, that's not right. Right? That's not fair. Why should Lazarus suffer so that, that Christ can be glorified? It, that just seems unnecessary that, that Lazarus should suffer for God to glorify himself. And we begin to think, this, this can't be right. How do we reconcile that you know, to a good God who glorifies himself in, the, in, the, in, in, his, in a person's suffering? But right there it is. It's in the text. Lazarus is suffering for the glory of God. It happens so Christ can be glorified. That's the brutal truth. 
right? That's the truth that we're going to grapple with is the fact that God in some ways is glorified in our suffering. God is glorified in our pain. And I know that it doesn't seem to want to fit inside your head, this idea. But that's where we are theologically. God is sovereign and in control of all things, which means everything happens by his will. Everything that God does, he does for his own glory, which means he allows you to suffer and he allows you to struggle and he allows you to go through hard times. And it is ultimately for your good, but most importantly, it is for his glory. God is glorified in our suffering. And the sooner that we come to terms with that, the sooner we embrace that truth, the better prepared we're going to be to worship God as we wait for him in our pain. Because let me tell you, that's what we're called to do. We were called to worship God in our pain. Remember the book of Job, right? Job was this very rich man who was blessed by God because he was righteous, right? And and the devil comes to, to God and says, you know, Job's only righteous because you're good to him, right? If you take away Job's protection, he will curse you to your face. So in a strange turn of events, God allowed Satan to inflict suffering upon Job. And one day he loses everything. He loses all his animals. He loses all his, his, his money. He loses all his, his children. Everything gone. He lost. I mean, like, like, like the, the travesty of his life is not something we can even fathom. Right? But, but how, does he, how does he react? How does Job respond? Well, look, chapter 1, beginning verse 20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell upon the, the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. And then he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang that song this morning. That's where this song comes from. This song isn't just about feeling good when we worship, right? This song is based on this particular text right here. When Job suffered catastrophic loss, he certainly grieved for sure. His heart was broken, but he still worshiped the Lord in his pain. And it says in verse 22, in all that this Job did not sin or charge God with the wrong. He didn't blame God. In all of Job's sufferings, he knew that God was in control. That he knew that God allowed it to happen. Look what it says. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. He knew knew what was happening. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshiped God in his suffering. You see, Job, in his suffering, he was able to worship because he had a high understanding, a high view of God. He had a deep theology of who God was. He knew for a fact that that God was sovereign. He just didn't say God was sovereign. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God was powerful. He knew that God created all things. He knew that God was all-knowing. He knew that God would be glorified in his suffering. And so he trusted God and he worshiped him in his suffering. But let me, let, me, let me tell you, if we understand who God is, if you really understand who God is, you will do the same thing. In fact, that's what we sang this morning. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say... Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. The reason why we sing this song is because it expresses that truth about God. It's about who we are. Now, now we don't sing. I mean, if you sing the song, do you really mean it? Or are they just words to you? Does the song just sound good in your ears? Do you just like the rhythm or do you just like the melody? Right? Or are we really willing to say he gives, he takes away. He gives and he takes away. My heart will... T- still choose to say, blessed be your name. When I was a brand new Christian, um, I went to a men's conference and uh, I went to one of these breakout sessions. And in this session, it was led by a man who was talking about family. And during the introduction, he told this story about the love of his life. And he had met this woman in Bible college and they fell in love. They were like best friends and uh, they went into ministry together. Like they, they, that's just their whole thing. They just want to be married and just and, and, and serve God together. They had three kids together. Life was awesome. I mean, here you were two people sold out for Jesus, working for the Lord. I mean, the, the full-time ministry, you know, and their family was all doing it together, right? And, and God seemed like it was blessing them at every turn. It was like they were living the dream. And then one day they get the diagnosis. His wife had cancer, and it was an aggressive form of cancer. But the, you know, there was hope 
Because if with surgery and with chemo and, and radiation, there was a chance they might overcome. And so they, they chose that road, even though the, the chances weren't very, very high. So believing in God, you know, that he would work a miracle to heal her, right? They went down that road. And, and, and so, uh, but he said, he goes, I was not prepared at all, not even remotely. I was not prepared for the suffering that, 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 that they had to endure, the pain after the surgery, the horrific side effects of the radiation, the endless nausea from the chemotherapy. His wife was suffering horribly because of this cancer and she wasn't getting any better. And then one night, as, 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 as he was trying to get some sleep, he was awoken to hear his wife in the bathroom throwing up once again. And, he, and, and she sounded weak, and, and, he, and he sounded like she, that she was in so much pain. He said, she sounded like a wounded animal in my bathroom. And he said, in that moment, I turned to God and I said, why? Why does she have to suffer like this? I mean, where are you, God? Why are you doing this to us? I mean, don't you know how much we love you? Can't you see that we're trying to live for you? We've given up everything to be in your service. Why, Lord, are you doing this to her? Why are you doing this to me? And then he said, as I'm complaining to God, I hear my wife in the bathroom saying something. And I realize she is praying. She is praying in her weak and pain-filled voice. And she's praying to God. And what is she saying? She's saying, Lord, if you can be glorified in this, then be glorified. If you can be glorified in my pain, then be glorified, Lord. Be glorified. How can she say that? How can she worship God in the midst of her unimaginable pain? Because she understands who God is. She understands who she was, you know, in, in the midst of her pain. How could she possibly endure that? Well, she understood that there was a purpose and a point to all that God does. She understood that there was more to Lazarus' story than just Lazarus' suffering. She knew there was a point to it. So Jesus hears Lazarus is sick, and he says, this is for the glory of God, and then notice what it says next. Now, Jesus loved Martha and, and her sister and Lazarus. So when they heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where she was. Let me, let, me, let me read that to you again. I want you to hear what just happened here, okay? Because when you read it and you really pay attention, it doesn't make sense. Now, Jesus loved Martha and his, her sister and Lazarus. He loved them, you know, which means he was close to them. He, they were good friends. That He had great affection for them. I mean, you notice, like, the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus, like, personally loved people you know, very many people. I mean, I mean, Jesus loved everybody, but there was like people he was especially close to, right? So he loved them. And it says, and because of that, so when he, that he loved them so much that, that when he heard about Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two days more. How, how does that make any sense? You and I wouldn't expect for him to say that. You would expect for it to say, you know, he loved them, Right? And so when he heard he was sick, then he ran to where they were, right? Right? That's what we'd expect that, that he would that he'd left the very minute he heard, or that he would jump on the first donkey he saw and he'd ride off to go to be with him. That's what, what we would expect for it to say, right? That's not what it says here. It says he loved them so he didn't leave right away. He stayed two days more. I mean, think about this. If somebody called you and said, you know what? Your good friend or your family member is in the hospital right now, and man, it doesn't look good. Do you wait two days to go see him? You wait two hours to go see him, right? That. So why does Jesus then, right? He says he loves them, right? And he says it's because he loves them. Because he loves them, he stayed two days longer in that place. Jesus made them wait because he loves them. This is another truth that, that, that we have to come to terms with. Sometimes God making us wait on him in our pain is because he loves us. As hard as that is an idea to fit into your head, sometimes it's the way it is. That sometimes God lets us suffer because he loves us. Now, this is another idea, like I said, that you're going to really struggle to put in your head, but that's what's in the text. You suffer and God will make you wait because he loves you. How does that make any sense? When you ask a question like that, then how does it make any sense that a God who created a universe 96 billion light years across cares about a speck like you who, who would rather rebel against him? 
right? How would it make any sense that God is so powerful and so magnificent that he would care about you? Yet he even says that every hair on your head is numbered. Now, some of you, that number is easier than mine, right? But that's what it says. Why would you? Why does it make sense that God would care about you? You see, when it comes to questions like this, oftentimes we're going to have to appeal to what Isaiah said or what God told Isaiah. He told Isaiah, he said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This truth is that bigger is, that God is bigger than your imagination. You and I are not going to fully understand the ways of God this side of eternity. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions. God is infinite. We are finite. We are not going to be able to fully grab a hold of why. But there it is on the page. The truth is that, that there are times that God's going to make us wait because he loves us, which means there's a reason for our pain. There's a reason for our suffering. There's a reason for our trials. God has something that he's doing with that. Remember what Paul tells us in Romans 8:28. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It didn't say that all things are good. It says all things work together for good. And this is where we have to begin to trust God and what he's doing. He is sovereign and in control and does everything that he does for his glory. He allows our suffering. He makes us wait because he loves us and in all things all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, we, we, we know that about God. Okay. That's what we know about his truth. So what are we called to do? We're called to, to turn to him. We're called to turn to him and to, to trust in him and to worship him and to glorify him in our pain. That's what we are to do. You see, it's always easy to follow God when things are good. It's always easy to say, praise the Lord when the sun is shining. It's easy to say amen when, when things are going your way. But when things get hard, that's really when we see if we actually trust in God. Now the story continues on, and, and Jesus tells his disciples that we're going, they're going to go to Jerusalem, and Lazarus is no longer uh, sick, but he is dead. And as he talks to them, Jesus says one of the craziest, most unexpected things. Verse 14, he says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died And then look at this. It says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. What? Lazarus was not only suffering from his illness, but it killed him. He suffered and he died. Jesus said, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him. I'm glad I wasn't there to take away his pain. I'm glad I wasn't there to keep his sisters from grieving because I know that their hearts are broken. He says, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. You've got to understand what this means here. Jesus is going to use Lazarus's and, and his sister's suffering not only to glorify himself, he is going to use it for a greater, bigger good. Jesus was going to use the suffering of the death of Lazarus to achieve a greater good, which was the faith of his followers and those people who would believe in him. You see, that's another thing we have to come to terms with is in our suffering, we don't always see the big picture. We can't see all the ends. We can't see how God's going to work things out. When we suffer, all we think about is us and like, let's get the pain over with. We can't oftentimes see that there's more going on behind the scenes. When my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer, I prayed all the time that God would heal her. All right? And... and, and I prayed over and over and over again, but she did not get better, right? And there were times I wondered about that. I'd ask, why? But hours before my mom passed away, she wanted me to come and pray with her one more time before she died. And and she expressed to my wife that she was not afraid and she trusted Jesus as her savior. Now, before my mom was diagnosed with cancer, my parents were not walking with God. So there's the truth right there. If my mom would have died before that, she, she would have not been with the Lord. But through her suffering, through the cancer, suddenly my parents found a connection to God and I was able to minister to them and they became believers through 
there, it, through my mom's suffering and had a relationship with Jesus. That's when I realized God saving souls is much more important to him than our comfort. Let's come to terms with that. If God can save a soul through your suffering, my friends, you're going to suffer. If God can save souls through your death, then you are going to die. That's why the prosperity gospel fails, because it does not see the true purpose and the plan of God. God's plan is not for you to be comfortable. His plan is not for you to live a pain-free life. God's plan is for you to be saved and for other people to be saved through you. God's plan is not for your life to be perfect. God's plan for your life is to be fruitful for his glory. God's plan is not for you to be rich in material things. God's plan is for you to be rich in grace and mercy. Your suffering always has a purpose. It's just we don't always see it. That's why we are called to trust him and to worship him and glorify him when things are hard, knowing that God is working things out, that he's doing something with our pain. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall not live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, she said to him yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, the thing that what you have to understand and what happened here is Mary trusted Jesus. She believed in him that he was the Messiah, but she didn't understand what he was saying to her. He told her that he was going to raise Lazarus that very day and went right over her head. She's like, I know that you're going to raise him in the last day, right? But she didn't understand that Jesus was going to raise him up that day. She didn't understand what he was saying. In fact, look at verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying, you know, in, in private, the teacher is calling, is here and he's calling you. She didn't run in there and say, hey, guess what? Jesus is here and he's going to raise Lazarus. All she said was, Jesus is here and he wants to see you. And this brings up an important point. Oftentimes when God lets us suffer, if he were to even come down and explain it to us, we probably oftentimes wouldn't even understand in the moment. There are going to be times that our, our, our suffering and pain is not going to make any sense to us, but there will be a point where we'll be revealed to us. But just like with, with, uh, with, with Martha at that time, he told her what was going to happen, and she still didn't understand. Just like Martha. Right? He explained it, she didn't understand. And oftentimes, we're just like that. We ask, why God? And, when, when, and the reality is, we wouldn't be able to understand why. In the moment. You see, in our sufferings, it's, it's, it's not about understanding. It's about trusting. And that's exactly what Martha did. She just trusted she didn't understand what he was saying. She just trusted him and believed that he was the Messiah. And eventually she, that, that, that Lazarus would be raised one day. She trusted that Jesus would work things out eventually. And then verse 29. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When, when the Jews who were in the house uh, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb and weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have been, my brother would not have died." She's echoing the words of her sister. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest and most profound verse in all the Bible, it says, Jesus wept. And what you have to understand here 
is that the word that this uses wept here is not just because he shed a few tears. It's not what this is saying. This Greek word actually has a, has a, a sense of hyperventilation, okay? Okay, Jesus wasn't crying, wasn't crying a little bit. He was sobbing uncontrollably. You know how when you're a kid, you cry so hard, you're like, <laughs> okay, that's the picture. That's, that's, that's how catastrophic his crying was. Okay, he was so deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, he cried his eyes out. Think about this. The God of heaven, right, moved by compassion for his friends, is crying his eyes out. That's the picture. And this is super important for us to understand because, because God may allow you to suffer. He might even ordain your suffering. And he may be glorified in your suffering, but he never takes pleasure in your suffering. He does not take pleasure in your pain. That's the most important thing you have to understand here. God is sovereign in control. Nothing happens outside of his will. God, God does everything for his own glory which means God allows and even ordains sometimes our pain so he can be glorified. But he never takes pleasure in our suffering. God does not rejoice in our pain. God does not feel happy when we go through hard times, even though he's glorified, even when we deserve it. In fact, he said to Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares, uh, declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from his way and live? Or in other words, do you think that I that like to see wicked people die? No. I want people to turn from their wicked ways and live. Now, now think about this. What would glorify God more than his enemies being squashed? What would, what, would, what would glorify God more than his sovereign justice to be done? Right? For God to make everything right, right? And give people what they deserve. And so he's vindicated. That would glorify him, wouldn't it? But here it is that he doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, right? He wants for them to live. God takes no pleasure in your pain. Understand that. God is a God of compassion and love, right? He takes no pleasure in your pain. He grieves over your pain. Jesus wept over it. But you know, through your hurts and trials, God works for your good and the good of others. And in the end, your suffering has a purpose it ultimately glorifies God. Look at verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He had been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you if you believe that you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound in linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who came with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You see, God uses this great tragedy and he uses the suffering of Lazarus and, and his sisters in a way that glorifies God. And it works the greatest good because many people believed in Jesus and were saved as a result. And, and that's, what, that's what we have to hold on to when we suffer. That's what we have to grab onto when things go sideways is that God is sovereign and he is at work when we can't see him and he will not waste your hurt. But instead, God will work for the greatest good in your glory. One of the best messages I've ever heard concerning this, my, my, there's a lady my wife listens to, and she says, God will take your mess and turn it into a message. He takes the tragedies in our lives and he turns them into a message of hope for other people. It's God, he is sovereign, he's at work, and he will not waste your hurt. But instead, he does it for the greatest good and for his glory. But there is there's one more thing I want you to see in this story. It said that many Jews believed, and some went and told the Pharisees what he did. And then in verse 47, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our palace and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, one who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better uh, for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. He said, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, into, into one the children of God who were scattered abroad so that so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. You see, not only did Lazarus' suffering and death bring glory to God, and not only did, it, did he use it for great good, it also led to the death of Christ. You see, before this happened, Jesus was a safe distance away from Jerusalem. Right? He, was, he, was, he was already being hunted. Right? And in fact, the, the, his disciples protested, like, why are we going to go there? Even Thomas said, well, let's go so we can die with him. Right? Right, so so they were a safe distance away, and and so and so he came, and this event really brought the wrong kind of attention. In fact, Jesus, you know, when he decided to raise Lazarus, he basically was sealing his own fate. He was signing his own death warrant right then, because there was no more escape for him. And so shortly after after that, instead of running and hiding, Jesus knew what was going to happen. So he went ahead and he embraced his suffering that was going to come upon him. And he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey like a conquering king. And then soon he was arrested. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was crucified where he suffered a slow, agonizing death on the cross. A death that was, by the way, was ordained by his father. And just before he died, Jesus experienced what we have experienced being sinners. He experienced separation from the Father, something that he had never known before in eternity past. And he cried out in agony and with a broken heart, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ suffered and was forsaken by his Father, and he died on the cross because his Father ordained it to happen. And God was glorified by it. God used it for the greatest possible good, and he used it for his own good. Christ suffered and was forsaken on the cross so that we will never, ever be forsaken in any part of our life, even when things are hard. God has promised to never leave us or forsake us, no matter what happens in our lives. He crushed his own son to make it possible that you could have the hope that no matter where you are, that God is with you and he has not left you and he won't forsake you. That ultimately is where we need to turn our eyes when we suffer. We need to turn our eyes toward Christ on the cross and we need to say to ourselves, I don't know why I'm going through this, but I know, God, that you are sovereign. I know that you are good. I know that you are all-knowing. I know that you're going to work all things out for my good. I know that there's a purpose to my pain. Right? Just like there was a purpose to Christ's pain. Father, I'm limited. I can't see all the ends, but I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to glorify you. And I'm going to wait on you in my suffering as long as it takes. You, Lord God, are the one in whom I trust. I'm not standing on, I'm not standing on my own shoulders. I'm standing on the promise that you made to me in Romans 8.28 that for those who love you, God, all things work together for their good and called according to his purpose. And God, I love you. So, Father, please be glorified in my pain. Let me pray for you. Father, I certainly see the appeal. Why so many people approach the prosperity gospel the way that they do. Because it would just be easier to say, hey, Lord, I'm I'm in pain, fix it. It would just be easier for me to just Pray a prayer and then for you to just give me more money in my bank account. Right? It would be easier for me to just just to pray some magical prayer out of the Bible and then suddenly all my problems go away. But that's not how you work. That's not that's not even even in my own best interest. All that does is make me more selfish. It makes me narcissistic. It's in my pain, Lord, that I realize and I come to understand I'm dependent upon you. And it's in my pain that I can actually see your glory. As C.S. Lewis said, he goes, 
God whispers to us in good times, but he shouts to us in our pain, Lord. It's when it's in our pain that you can get our attention. And so, so Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just use your word today to impress upon our hearts that as we struggle and we get in, into those times that are hard, that we don't lean away from you. We lean into you even more. And that we grow in our trust and our faith in you, knowing that you're going to use this in a way that's going to glorify your name and is going to work out the best for us. We might not understand it. We might not even like, we might even cry our eyes out and, and weep and, and, and just be in deep remorse for it. But let us worship you like Job did, understanding that you ultimately are going to work things out for your good and for our good and for your glory. And Father, that's what it's about because one day we're going to stand in your presence. If we put our trust in you and our faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, one of these days we're going to stand in your presence and we're going to see your glory for all that it is. And your word said there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more strife, no more suffering. And we'll stand forevermore in the presence of your son, Jesus Christ, loving each other. That's where my mom is. I'm going to be with her. That's where our good friend Richard Sears is. I'm going to get to see him again. And so, Father, in all that we do, even in our pain, be glorified. Please raise up a people in this church, Lord, that are hungry for your word and who want to share your hope with our community. We love you. We praise you. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.